There is no psalm where the writer pours out his heart about his sin more than in this psalm. There are seven psalms that are traditionally called penitential psalms. Psalms of persons repenting. 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. We remember none of them as vividly as we do Psalm 51, or at least that's true for most people. And tonight, I think we'll see some reasons why it is remembered uh, and how why it is powerful. One of the values of the Psalms is it shows us how to approach God in various circumstances in our life. And when we have sinned, and when our heart is broken... Psalm 51 is a good example of how to approach God. I did have a little bit of an outline. I hesitated to write it on the board, not knowing how good it is. But let's just get the psalm in front of us. Psalm 51, the title for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in your innermost being. In your hidden part you'll make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. The God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. 
then young bulls will be offered on your altar. We are about to enter a set of psalms. First of all, that are described as psalms of David. Remember we have talked about songs of the sons of Korah from 42 to 49. And then 50 was a psalm of Asaph. But beginning with 51 through the end of this second book, book 72, most of these will be Psalms of David. And many of these Psalms have historical headings at the beginning. Look at 52. For the choir director, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Psalm 54. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? It's not, it's not David hiding himself among us. Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is when the Philistines seized David in Gath. Psalm 57. A mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Psalm 59. A mitcom of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Now I know we went over that really fast. <coughs> Did you notice something about those Psalms 52 to 59? All of those Psalms deal with Saul and David and, uh, well, you could say in the days Saul was fleeing with David, one of them mentioned him going to the Philistines. But all of them deal with before he really became king. Psalm 51 chronologically would be before these. And it makes a better psalm. Like I found this out in listening to music. Listen to music and observe. It makes a better song if your girlfriend breaks your heart than if you end up getting married. (laughs) It's a a better song. and it makes a better psalm when a person is broken. But if he's not broken, if David's not broken because somebody else is doing him wrong, he, like us, often create trouble for ourselves by doing something wrong. And that's what David does in Psalm 51 that calls for his confession. Again, I did not put an outline on the board, but just look at these things and and just think about them as we go throughout the psalm. The depth of David's sin, the magnitude of God's mercy, The fullness of God's forgiveness. The 
the fullness of forgiveness that God brings and uh, also the uh, complete joy that he experiences. You know, these are some of the themes. I'm not claiming they're all of them, but I do think those will help you uh, with this particular psalm. Okay. Apologize. Okay. Hebrew poetry. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, according to your loving kindness. According to the magnitude of your mercy, how does it say in the numerical sentence? To, to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my iniquity. This would be what is called by people who study poetry an A B. B.A. line of poetry. What do I mean here? The A lines match. He is making a request of God. Be gracious to me. Blot out my iniquity. He's making request of God. Why does he make those requests of God? He makes those requests based on God's loving kindness and also the greatness of His compassion. It is because of the loving kindness of God. It is because of the compassion of God that He can make a plea to God, be gracious to me, blot out my iniquity. And if those, that division of poetry helps you get that down, I simply illustrate it that way. But three important words are used. Uh, more than that, but, but right now the nature of God. The words be gracious, the words loving kindness, and the word compassion that I did not put here. He bases his appeal on the grace, the loving kindness, the compassion of God. Now, each of these terms that are used here are used in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Remember Moses asked, Show me your glory. And he said, No man can see my face and live. He would put Moses in a rock and cover him with his hand. But uh, my face you cannot see. But the Lord reveals himself. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. These three covenant words from Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, they are used right at the beginning of Psalm 51. He is begging God to show him grace, to show him loving kindness, to show him compassion. He is begging God to show mercy upon him for his sins and his failures. 
He describes his sins by speaking of them in verse 1 as transgressions, verse 2 as iniquity and sin. Verse 1 and 2, they are transgressions. Transgressions have the idea of crossing a boundary line. God has said you shall not commit adultery. And somebody commits adultery. They cross a boundary. They transgress. They go into someone else's field. They commit iniquity or they sin. Now you've often heard sin defined as missing the mark. You have a literal illustration of that in Judges chapter 20 verse 6. As some could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That is our word sin. Not miss. And transgressions, iniquity, and sin. These are all ways to speak of his wrongdoing. And he asked God blot out his transgressions, wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, cleanse him from his sin. He is making statements about the magnitude of God's grace and about the depth of his sin. A lot of different terms could be used for his sin. Now, if you remember when we studied Psalm 32, Psalm 32 uses this same vocabulary. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 in particular starts out the psalm with each of these three words for sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. It was interesting to me, I was reading this in the ESV, and maybe the greater benefit was me reading this in a Bible I had not made any notes in. There's a value in making notes in your Bible. You don't want to keep rediscovering the will. You know, I, I have sometimes told Christy, I have found a great point, only to find it written in another Bible. <laughs> So there's a value in using a Bible with notes in it. But there's a value in reading a Bible that you haven't marked in. Because you see things too that you haven't seen. And I'll tell you one of the things that was really striking to me when I was reading it in my ESV is how he keeps using personal pronouns, usually my, for his sin. And he keeps using Pronouns, second person pronouns, your for God's compassion. His sin is contrasted with God's loving kindness, with God's grace, with God's abundant mercy. But here in verse 3, here in verse 3, he states his sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I want to be careful how I say this. Because I know it can be debilitating. Guilt itself, though, is not a problem. It's going to be what we do with guilt. I imagine, I hope, every human being feels guilty about something. But what do you do with it? My transgressions 
are before me. He said, my transgression, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that doesn't sound right. If this is dealing with David's sin with Bathsheba, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Even if she was a willing participant, and I recognize that Scripture is not full about that, but I think she was. Even if she was a willing participant, he sinned against her. He definitely sinned against her husband. And he sinned against all of them when he had her husband killed. We can sin even against our own bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20 states. We can sin against our brother and defraud him. 1 Thessalonians 4 in verses 3 through 6. We can sin against ourselves. We can sin against another. David certainly sinned against Uriah. I am not minimizing any of that, nor do I think the Bible writer is. What he is maximizing is how horrible sin against God is. The worst thing about sin, as horrible as what we do to one another is sometimes, the worst thing about sin is not what we do to one another but what we do to God. Now, I want you to think about this passage in this light. A couple of passages. First of all, Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph is setting everything up. When Potiphar's wife says, lie with me, he says, no. He says, my master has committed everything into the house, but, but to me... Uh, He's committed all that's in the house to me except for you because you are his wife. How can I do this wickedness? It sounds like to me he's about to say, how can I do this wickedness and sin against him? He doesn't say that. How can I do this wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39 verse 9. If Joseph had committed adultery with Potiphar's wife, the worst thing wouldn't have been what he'd done to Potiphar's wife, but what he did to God. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul was talking about sinning against the weak brother and wounding his conscience. And he said in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 12, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. First Corinthians 8, 12 was that passage. The other was Genesis 39 and verse 9. As horrible as what David did to Uriah was, what he did to God is worse. Now that's sobering for each of us to think that against you And you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
And we can't protest the verdict. We can't say we're not guilty because we are guilty. And I think that's what this passage is saying. This passage is saying we cannot protest our sentence because we are guilty. And then he says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. In context, he has been emphasizing my iniquity, verse 2. My transgressions, verse 1. My transgressions, verse 3. My sin, verse 3. I have sinned, verse 4. He's emphasizing his guilt and he's accepting full responsibility for it. I don't think this is an effort to blame anybody else for his sin except him. He is not trying to blame his mother. He is not trying to to blame some inherited disposition. But but I'll tell you what I think verse 5 is doing. Verse 5 is a strong hyperbole to emphasize that from his earliest moments he had sinned. It is hyperbole, uh, which is a word I'm kind of excited to write on the board because I can spell it right. Um, always surprises me when I do that for a long word like that. But it's an intended exaggeration for emphasis. Now, one of the reasons why I think that is the case here. This is a psalm of David, but Psalm 22 is a psalm of David as well. In Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10, You are He who brought me forth from the womb and made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Psalm 22, 9 and 10 emphasizes the same kind of thing. Hyperbole to emphasize that he has always trusted in God. He's always trusted in God. If you can get a doctrine of original sin from Psalm 51, 5, then you can get a doctrine of original trust from Psalm 22. 9 and 10. I think both are intended intended exaggerations. One, to drive home. Lord, I've always trusted and you don't desert me when I need you most. Or, I've always, I have always been guilty before you. Now, I want you to think about this just a moment. I have sometimes been calling to God in time of crisis and I can look to times in my life when I was very young, these are before I was a Christian, and where I was looking to God for help and turning to Him for help. And I've also had prayers in which I was confessing and acknowledging sin and I can point to things that before I was a Christian I knew were wrong and I did them anyway. I mean, I don't think I'm unique in that experience. We could do the same kind of thing, can't we? And I think that's what you see 
here in this passage where he is confessing his sin and coming clean about all he has done wrong, he is overwhelmed with the avalanche of evidence there is against him and all the things that he's done wrong. Gary? So often when we do confess sin, we will say it almost like, yeah, I messed up this time. Kind of as it's an anomaly in a normally righteous life. You know, we want to say yeah. this kind of a freak event. You know, yeah. I was really, that was out of character for me. We will yeah. do all those kind of things trying to minimize it. He was doing the opposite. Yes, that's a very good point. He is maximizing what he has done. He is not trying to say it wasn't as bad as it looked. It was worse than it looked. It was worse than it looked. And his career is worse than he looks. And he is throwing himself on the mercy and the compassion of God. So it is, that's that's a good way to say it. Any other comments that you have? It was hard for me to put these next few verses into a kind of outline form. But we'll just go over them step by step. He says in verse 6, You desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So God desires the deepest recesses of our being to be submitted to Him, to be humble before Him. In verse 6, you desire truth, or verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So he's emphasized the depth of his sin. He has emphasized the magnitude of mercy. Now he is making a plea to experience full forgiveness, complete cleansing, hyssop, Hyssop is only mentioned uh, ten times in the whole Old Testament. Ten times. Uh, One of them is in Exodus 12, verse 22, where it was used to put the blood of the Passover lamb upon the doorpost. Another place it's used is in 1 Kings 4 and verse 23, or 1 Kings 4, verse 33. In Solomon's wisdom, they spoke of the hyssop, among the other things that they spoke of. The other times that you see the word hyssop, it is in Leviticus 14 or Numbers 19. Leviticus 14, uh, it is used some five times in these verses. In Numbers 19, it is used... Numbers 19, it is used two times. Now, some of you that were in Numbers class, I could call on you here, and I'm sure you would know that in Numbers 19, this is for purifying uh, a body that had come in contact with the dead. If you if you touched a dead body or if you walked into a room where a person was dead, you had to be cleansed. This is purifying one from leprosy. 
Now, when you think of the most severe types of uncleanness in the Old Testament, they were probably these two. Any kind of connection being around a dead body or leprosy, these were intense, severe forms of uncleanness. Hyssop was used in purifying the most extreme cases of uncleanness. And that's why he uses that as the picture. Purify me with hyssop. He knows his uncleanness is great. He knows his sin is horrible. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. When God was going to appear on Mount Sinai, the people were told to wash their clothes. In Exodus 19 verse 10, Exodus 19 verse 14, he is begging that God wash him, that God make him clean. Purify me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He is asking for God to forgive him fully. Even though our sin is great, His mercy is so great that we can be fully forgiven. In verse verse 8, Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. God, He attributes to God the breaking of His bones as a punishment for his wrong, but he is asking that God heal them once again. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins. Now, there are a couple of passages, and we could point out others, but in Psalm 13 verse 1, that we've covered so far. Lord willing, we will cover someday 88.14. Both of those beg God not to hide His face. Please do not hide your face from the psalmist. But He does ask that God hide His face from my sins. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. As I was looking up the word hide in some places that it's used in the Old Testament, it's not always translated hide. It's, it's translated, for example, in Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is translated conceal. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Think about that in this context. Is it the glory to the glory of God to conceal? To hide our sins. That He can forgive our sins. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Now if I ask you what book used the word, what book of the Old Testament used the word create most often? Genesis. Genesis, right. How'd you get that? Oh, it was hard. (laughs) (laughs) 
Every time this word is used, I think that God is the subject. That God is the one doing the action. And He is saying, create in me a clean heart. Just as God spoke our world into existence, He knows that for Him to be a new man, God will have to make Him new. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 10, 11, and 12, least in the New American Standard, will all use the word spirit. I'll use the word spirit. Created me a clean heart. Renew a right, a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Okay? Presence and Holy Spirit. Now, I believe the Bible teaches a Holy Spirit in a fuller sense in the New Testament, but I don't think there's a real difference here between God's presence and God's Spirit. Let me let me show you a parallel. Psalm one thirty nine verse seven. Psalm one thirty nine verse seven. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You see the word spirit and presence were used interchangeably. We still may need to capitalize this because it is in reference to God but I didn't capitalize it in the sense that you don't think of the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. But God's presence and God's Spirit seem to me in these verses to be used interchangeably. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Not only is he going to experience full forgiveness, washed thoroughly from his iniquity, cleansed from his sin, God hiding his face from his sin, but he wants to experience the complete joy that comes from being right with God. The complete joy that comes from that. Make me to hear joy and gladness, verse 8 and verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is being forgiven of our sins and God washing away our iniquities, is that a motivation for evangelism? Pretty powerful motivation, isn't it? Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says, Woe is me and I am undone. As he sees the holiness of God. He sees himself as a sinner who has come short. Woe is me for I am undone. And after the Lord sent an angel who touched his lip with tongs, he says, Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And he asked, 
whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. Because he had been forgiven so much, he wanted to go and tell the story of forgiveness. And it's the same way in Psalm 51 verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Sinners will be... By the way, the word converted at the end of verse 13, it's the last word in the Hebrew text. It's the same word translated restore at the beginning of verse 12. In verse 12, it's something that God will do. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But in verse 13, sinners will be converted to you. What questions do you have now, Gary? Just make the observation, isn't it interesting that after David has done something so egregious and has been forgiven, he's qualified still to teach sinners. We might feel like we were forever banished from being able to do that. Yes. It's, it's kind of like the, the person that was, the demons were cast out, go back to your own country and show them what he's done for you. The very fact they would have known the story of his sin would also make the power of his forgiveness greater, and that is you're exactly right. It's a it's a blessing that the Lord gives. I somebody once asked me seriously. Um, it wasn't here, I don't think. That's if I introduce it like that. But somebody said, "Can God use?" Imperfect people. <laughs> Outside of Jesus, that's all he uses. I mean, that's that's all we have. So, um, verse fourteen: Deliver me from blood guiltiness. And that word blood guiltiness is generally associated with. It can just be translated blood, but a lot of times in this context, it's associated with murder. And it reminds us of what he's done. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. If God, by His grace, forgives him, and God creates a clean heart, and God fills him with joy, it is God who is opening his lips. Ultimately, he eats. In a sense, it doesn't mean he's passive in the whole process, but it, but God is the one who's doing all of this. O oh Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God you will not despise. What does God want most from us when we sin? This is a pretty good picture here. Not just a sacrifice, not just a burnt offering, not just a step forward during the invitation song. Not minimizing the sincerity of any of those things. But it has to come from a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. It has to come 
from someone who has humbled himself before God and is casting himself upon his mercy. Look back at Psalm 34. Psalm 34 and verse 18. And notice how it uses similar language. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those two beatitudes symbolize or describe these attitudes. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Another similar passage is in Isaiah 57, 15, where the Bible says, Thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What was that passage? That was Isaiah 57, 15. 57, 15. Yes. I, I, I think it's interesting. David could have offered thousands of sacrifices here. Uh, Tom Holly was preaching on this this passage one time. <clears throat> he made the point in verse 17 that when, when there is this broken and contrived heart, God can't turn his face away. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. God, because he's promised to be near, the one who dwells in a high and holy place, according to Isaiah 57, is near to the broken and the contrite of heart. We, we sing a song, or used to sing a song some. Um, we, may, we may not have sung it in a while. Does Jesus care? And ask this question, does Jesus care? When I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong, when for my deep grief there is no relief, though the tears flow all the night long. Now if you've ever lived that, remember this verse. Sacrifices of God our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. Jesus does care in such circumstances. In verses 18 and 19, it says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Is there a change in emphasis here? Then you will delight in righteous then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The young bull will be offered on your altar. By your favor, you well, some look at this, he's building the walls of Jerusalem, and they think, oh, it has to be the time of Nehemiah. Well, listen. You said you went on 465 and there was construction. That could be any time within the next 
for the last 30 or 40 years. <laughs> and there was probably always construction going on at the walls of Jerusalem, including when David conquered that from the Jebusites. But it is fascinating to me to see the connection between God building David's broken life and God building the city at the end of the psalm. You know, his heart has been broken. His life has been broken. He begs God for mercy and now begging God to build the city. But, but one writer said it a little differently. And this was interesting. And well, he made this comment. If I can find. Okay. The people... Who have, newly, who have been newly created by forgiveness of their sins are in fact the ideal inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. And it's true that the renewal of Zion um, has as its central point the creation of its new inhabitants. In other words, he, may be, he was saying that this may be showing us how Zion is built. One person at a time. As one person turns their heart, God builds the whole nation. Just a thought, okay? Any questions or ideas there? Okay, the depth of David's forgiveness, the magnitude of his mercy, the fullness of forgiveness, all these things are stressed. Now, let me, let me tell you, before we're about to talk about how Jesus fulfills this, but I want to tell you something that I, I hope will excite you and not discourage you. But I, in preparation for this class, I didn't get to read as many books as I usually do, usually like to. And I think this is such a central psalm. I'm thinking about preaching on it Sunday night anyway, in spite of this class. Um... There will be some amount of repetition involved in that. But I'm hopefully going to be able to present it in a new way. So let's see. If, if it doesn't work, you can tell me afterwards privately, kindly. Don't do that again. But uh, we'll, we'll try to see. But, but let's look at Psalm 51. We're going to look at Psalm 51. In the New Testament, in just a second, particularly Jesus, as it is fulfilled in Him. But before I did that, I also want to make this point. One of the writers stated that what is promised in Ezekiel 36, 25-27, in that promise of a new covenant is very similar to what David asked in Psalm 51. And let me just read a few of these verses and notice some similarities between the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and these statements in um, Psalm 51. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you 
from all your filthiness and from your idols. Now remember, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me with the hyssop and I shall be clean here. God says, I'll sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be clean. So Ezekiel 36, 25 sounds a lot like Psalm 51, verse 2, Psalm 51, verse 7. Verse, verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit. Psalm 51 verse 10. Same kind of language. In verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall be careful to observe my ordinances. But again, my point is a lot of the language here sounds like the language of this promise when God gathers His people from all nations. The word new covenant is not used, but but it is that idea as He gathers His people back from captivity. Now, can you remember any place that Psalm 51 is specifically quoted in the New Testament. Is there any place, there's one place that it is specifically quoted. Do you recognize that? Okay, 51.4 51.4 says, so you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That is quoted in Romans 3, verse 4. Let God be true and every man a liar, the passage tells us. And then it quotes from this passage. Now, in the context, the overall context of Romans 1, verse 18, to Romans 3, verse 20, The Bible is convincing us of sin. That sin is universal. That we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And I think it's interesting that he takes the words of this most passionate psalm of confession and he applies these words in this context that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In a certain sense, Psalm 51 convicts us all of sin. I think that is part of the message there. But there are a lot of other connections. Let me ask you to make some here. Um, the, the class has been strangely silent tonight. Um, but any comments? Here's some I came up with. The word used for the mercy of God 
In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same word used in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, among other places. About God's great grace and mercy that saves us. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. And I think that's where the word is used. The greatness of your compassion or your mercy blot out my transgression. God's mercy displayed in Christ Jesus through the cross is the ground of our salvation. And he says, blot out my transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. In Colossians 2... In verse 14, Colossians 2, in verse 14, having canceled out or blotted out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The word that is used in the Greek translation there is the same word used in the Greek translation of Colossians, or the New Testament of Colossians 2 and verse 14. As Derek Kidner said, only grace could reveal at what cost the bond which stood against us could be blotted out. The Bible says in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Verse 2 and verse 7, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Greek word for wash is only used three times in the New Testament. Only three times. Two of them in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 7, in verse 14, and in Revelation 22, in verse 14, th- those who are in the white robes, who are they? The question is asked. And the answer is given in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, in verse 14. My Lord, you know, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. How can we make such a request? We can make such a request because of Jesus. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Also that particular word that is used there for cleansing in verse 2. And then later in verse 7, I will be cleansed. The Bible says it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Purify me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
The hyssop is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. And one of them is mentioned in connection with the cross in John 19 and verse 29. Now, understanding that the hyssop was used to put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, and Jesus is going to be identified in that passage as a fulfillment of that Passover lamb. I, I know that may be a stretch. It could be, but I'm inclined to think it's not. And even the other time where hyssop is mentioned in the New Testament is in Hebrews 9 and verse 19. And the Bible is talking about these Old Testament sacrifices and applying the hyssop and, and how, how the blood of these animals uh, served a purpose and served for the sanctifying of the flesh. But it's making a how much more argument for the blood of Christ. Everything about hyssop in the New Testament points to the death of Jesus and is tied to the death of Jesus. When verse 8 and verse 12 says, Make me to know joy and gladness. In verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The particular word for joy is only used five times in the New Testament. But that particular word for joy, one of the times it's used, it described the joy of the early church as they were meeting from house to house and having fellowship. The joy they had in Jesus and fellowship to Him is described there. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Create in us a clean heart. He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10 We are, the noun form is used in 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are a new creation in Christ. God creates in us a clean heart and renews a steadfast spirit within us. Did, did, I'm sure I missed something. Anybody? Any thoughts? Yes? Um, Psalm 51 verse 8, the idea of uh, let the bones of your broken rejoice reminded me of Hebrews 12, um, the idea that um, God disciplines us so we can share His holiness. Um, verse 11, okay. all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but afterwards it yields fruitful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay. That's a really cool idea. Very good, very good. It's. I don't know if cool is a word I would use <laughs> to talk about discipline, um, particularly when you're on the receiving end, but I understand it is a, it is a good point. It is uh, that God can use the discipline to build in us a holy character. And uh, so that's it's, it's a very good point. Hebrews 12, the bones which you have broken calls them to rejoice. And that's the only kind of discipline that God inflicts upon us. Uh, one writer has said this on this psalm. The very fact 
that the very first verse that you use three key covenant words, God's grace, God's compassion, God's loving kindness, shows us that from the very start, God's judgment on the sinner is for the purpose of rescuing the sinner and making him a new creation. God's purposes in doing that, as Claire said, are gracious and merciful. He seeks to bring us to himself. Okay? Anything else? You've said this before several times, but God wants us to be saved more than we wanted ourselves. That's right. That's right. And look at the links he's gone to to make sure that happens. And um, so he is wanting to bring us into fellowship with him. Very good. Well, we are glad that you're all here. And um, Caleb, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Dear Lord, we're so thankful that we could study your word tonight. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for this psalm that you put in your word. It was spoken by David at one of the lowest moments of his life, God. But we see how you forgave him and uh, how much influence that has had even over our lives uh, thousands of years later. Lord, we are so thankful for the peace that you give us for the forgiveness uh, and especially for the immense love that you have shown us. Lord, we recognize that we find true forgiveness through the sacrifice of your son and that it is because of him that we can uh, not only speak to you but that we can have a relationship with you and one day spend eternal life with you Lord we ask you that we will grieve over our sins like David did but that we will find the peace that you give us Lord we ask you that you will cleanse our hearts and restore your spirit within us and we just thank you God again for opportunities like these where we can open your word and see your good works and help us never to lose the joy of being restored to you and that every time we will fall we will find that same joy uh, every time please watch over us uh, tonight and the rest of this week and May we seek to be pleasing to you in all that we do. It's in your son's saying that we pray. Amen. 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 I think it's interesting that all of that you didn't mention that 